This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following message is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. You know, it's, it's hard to believe for me, but in just a few short months, uh, my wife and I are going to be empty nesters. That's a weird feeling for us. Four children we've had for 28 years who, who rocked our world and stole our hearts, suddenly they're going to be gone. It's just going to be Sherrod and I and our dog, Maddie. They're in the house together, and we're not going to like the quiet very much because about this season of life, you begin to discover what we talked about last week, and that is that parenting really is one of the great joys that there is in life. I mean, what greater achievement could there be than to be able to launch life out in this world, especially when it's a positive, healthy difference-making kind of life. What, what, greater, what greater achievement can a man have than to send that, that living message of hope into the future for himself? That's what parenting is all about. Of course, it takes the best of you because parenting is not for the faint of heart. It's, it's as you all know, kind of a white-knuckled, long-term commitment that's a thrill ride that lacks and this is what we wish it would give us, it lacks any guarantees of an outcome. We wish that it would. Unfortunately, it doesn't. We just have to hang on for the ride. And for some of the moments, there are these incredible highs. And sometimes in parenting, there are these crashing lows. In fact, it's a lot like a snowmobile ride I took in Wyoming a couple of years ago, where we set off for a day of adventure. I want to give you a picture of us guys out. This is how we started. Few friends, a couple of teenagers, and we went for the most part for a ride near Yellowstone that was picturesque and fairly peaceful. But there came a moment in our ride where we all circled up in a meadow. And while we were sitting there kind of resting, a couple of the teenagers found a, a, a snow ramp where they kind of rode their snowmobiles off of and kind of got a little lift, you know, for some excitement. And so after watching them do that, I thought, you know, I'm going to try that. <laughs> so I handed a camera to one of my friends. I said, hey, I'm going to go off that ramp. You take a picture. And let's see if I can get a little height there. And I'd never launched a 600-pound snowmobile before. But I got up on the ridge up there and started down. And about the time I hit the ramp, I realized I was going a little too fast. And what I thought was a gentle ramp was really more of a vertical ramp. So I'll let the next picture tell you what happened. <laughs> the only thing I don't like about this picture is it only shows the beginning of the launch. My friend said that I hit a world record 15 feet where the snowmobile ultimately, when it reached its peak, was going completely vertical and I was going completely horizontal. I did a uh, kind of a, a perfect Superman layout. It would have all been very spectacular, kind of a Sports Illustrated cover, if it hadn't been for the fact that I didn't break the gravitational pull. So what went up 
had to come down. Last thing I remember was me slipping off the back end of the snowmobile and I heard something break. And then there was blackness. And then there was this picture. <laughs> I'm glad I came too. The first thing I thought was, hello, you're 53 years old. What were you thinking? <laughs> then the second thought was, I wish I hadn't been using that uh, whitening toothpaste recently because it's going to be hard to find my teeth in the snow. <laughs> now, I show you this because I just want you to understand, parenting is a lot like that snowmobile ride. There's some thrilling highs. And then there's some crashing lows. I remember how excited my wife and I were when my daughter set a record, a regional record in the backstroke for AAU swim team. And then she got invited to swim in the All-American meet in Austin, Texas. She was just 13 and she was setting records nationally. And for a brief moment as a dad, I had visions of Olympic glory dancing in my head. But right after the All-American meet in Austin, Texas, my wife stopped at a little convenience store one day after practice to pick up a drink for my daughter, Elizabeth. And she went inside, got the drink, came out and opened the door of the car. And when she opened the door of the car, there was my daughter having the first of many epileptic seizures that she would encounter for the rest of her life. And then that led to a series of medications that didn't work, and that ended her swim career. And then for the next 10 years, we battled with epilepsy. Great high one moment, crashing low the next. I can remember being in the emergency room one night at Baptist Hospital and the doctor walking out of the emergency room and telling me that they were going to have to amputate the ends of some of my son's toes. And that he'd probably have difficulty walking the rest of his life. My first thought as a dad, knowing how much he loved sports, was he'd never play again. I was absolutely crushed that evening at Baptist Hospital. And then six years later, sitting in Brian Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, it's the second overtime against Alabama, and seeing that same son run onto the field with the special teams and snap the winning field goal to beat the Crimson Tide. Boy, it just doesn't get any better than that. Incredible highs and crashing lows. Listen, guys, parenting is not for the faint of heart. It's a white-knuckled thrill ride. It's a long-term commitment requiring nail-biting faith and never-ending hope and unconditional love all along the way. You know, if you look at the Bible and if you look at your outline, you'll see that the Bible is very realistic about parenting. It shows you those same highs and lows. Let me just read you some snapshots of the highs and lows of parenting as you go through the Bible. For instance, in Genesis 4, right at the very beginning of the Scripture, it says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've begotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Tremendous highs. Then followed a few chapters later, with, or a few verses later, with these lows. And it came about when they were young men and in the field that Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Or how about Psalm 127.3? The fruit of the womb is a reward, 
And yet in Genesis 27, we read, And Rebekah said to her husband Isaac, I am tired of living. If our son Jacob marries a pagan woman, what good will my life be to me? In Proverbs 10.1, it says, A wise son makes a father glad. Boy, that is so true. And yet in 2 Samuel 18, we read this hard reality. And when David learned about the death of his foolish son Absalom, he cried, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Can you feel the heartache in those words? Or how about Proverbs 17, 6? The glory of sons is their fathers. And yet in 1 Samuel 2, it says, And Eli the priest heard all that his sons were doing and how they lay with women. And he said to them, Why do you do such evil things? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. And the Lord desired to put them to death. Proverbs 29.3 says, A son who loves wisdom makes his father glad. But Proverbs 17.25 says, A foolish son is grief to his father and bitterness to the mother who bore him. Psalm 127.3 says, Children are a gift of the Lord. But Judges 11.35 says, Jephthah's daughter was his only child. And it came about when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me low, very low. And you are among those who trouble me. Matthew 3.17 says, And after Jesus was baptized, behold, the heavens opened, and God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Luke 15 says, A certain man had two sons, and the younger one said, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And that son went away and squandered his estate with harlots and loose living. And yet even that wasn't the end of the story. It wasn't long after that 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 very son came running back to his dad. And his dad embraced him and killed the fatted calf. And he said, This son whom I'm lost is now found. And he had another high out of that low. Do you feel in all those the thrill ride of parenting? The highs and the lows, the A's and the F's, the intense pride and the gut-wrenching pain, the excellence and then the embarrassment, the triumphs, the tragedies, the reward and the rebellion. They're all mixed together. Parenting is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> and yet in this thrill ride, what do you hold on to? This morning as we finish up the last of the sessions on a man in his home, I want to give you four handlebars that you can grip. You need to grip tightly all the way through this ride with children under the roof. Four handlebars for maximum parenting. Here they are. Here's the first. The first is hold on to the goal. Hold on to the goal. And what is the goal of parenting? Well, you know, the Bible actually opens with it. It says it a little bit cryptically, but here's how it says it in Genesis 1.28. It says, And God blessed the man and his wife and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. Now look at the verse. Do you see the goal of parenting in there? It's nestled in there. First of all, if we're just observing the verse, it's not just saying to the man and his wife that you're just to multiply and fill the earth. It's not just having kids. 
The verse says that the goal of parenting is having kids who can then subdue and rule the earth in a way that God desired. It's that he put the man and the woman that they would be this little healthy incubator that would allow them ultimately to release into the world difference makers, godly difference makers who could exercise a certain level of righteous leadership over the little bit of turf of planet earth that they would ultimately go and possess. That's the goal of parenting. That's why thousands of years later, the Apostle John would say these words passionately. He said, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Why would that be the greatest joy? Well, it harkens back thousands of years to that, that command that God gave to release these difference makers. And now here John is seeing his spiritual children walking in the truth, and he's saying, here they are, difference makers. They will go out in their little enclaves, their little patch of planet earth, and they will exercise righteous leadership. They will subdue and they will rule in the way God wanted. And that was the goal God had in mind when he put the man and woman together to produce something, to multiply. Whatever else a dad thinks will bring him joy in his kids. And you know, we have all kinds of dreams, don't we, for our kids? Dreams that they will fulfill for us, whether they will be the smartest or the best looking. For us dads, the star athlete or for mom, the most popular, the brightest, the best, the one who gets the most attention. Whatever goals that you might think as a young dad, for instance, that you have for your kids, aspirations for them. Here's what I want you to know from one who's traveled a little further down the road. The truth is, they could be all of those things and more. But if they're every one of those things, but if they miss in the end, walking in truth of knowing God, then whatever joy you will have will not reach the joy it could have been. Because the joy that it could have been is the goal. And you need to hold on to that goal. That's why from the time our children are born on, we should be doing two things all the time. In little ways, not, not force-feeding it, but just by the quality of our life and by the wealth of our words, we should be doing these two things. Regardless of how good and bad they are at any time or how compliant or rebellious, we need to be pointing them to God. We need to be pointing our children to God. And praying secondly, and praying fervently and continuously that they will go there. Hold on to the goal. By the time your children reach midlife, here's what I'm starting to learn. I'm on the front end of this. But as your children grow older, it won't matter much anymore what they look like. It won't matter as much to you how smart they are or that they won that trophy in micro soccer, or that they made straight A's in junior high school. Those things were important. They were. They're not to be discounted. But as they move out into life, those things won't hold the same luster that they once did. Life will have settled down into what really counts. Everybody look at me. 
Life will have settled down by that time into what really counts. And what really counts is that when you look out and you see your kids, you see values. You see faithful love. You see standards. You see an honorable name. You see them making contributions in the world. And that they're difference makers. And I want you to know our greatest assurance that those things will occur in our children is when one day they walk up to you and from out of their gut, with no coercion on your part, they move into your space and they look at you and they say, Dad, let me tell you what God's doing in my life. When they say that, I can promise you, you can be assured they're moving towards the goal. It's one of the greatest moments in all of life. A number of years ago, our daughter Elizabeth moved to Europe to work for a consulting firm. And while she was in Europe, she fell for a bright, successful, young New Zealander. And in the midst of that, a relationship occurred, except for there was one problem. And that is, this young New Zealander had no faith in God. Now, we had raised our daughter to understand the Scriptures. And so she came to this moment where here's this real person, very successful, that she really liked. And she had great feelings for her on this side, except if you know anything about the Scripture, the Scripture says that you're not to marry someone who has no faith, who isn't following the same God you are. So she had God over here and these unbelievable feelings over here. It was her own kind of wilderness experience. And we were thousands of miles away. All we could do at that point in her life was point her to God and pray fervently that she would go there. And I never will forget in the midst of that very testing, gut-wrenching time for her, she called one day and made one of the most heroic decisions, I think the most heroic decision she's ever made. She quit her job, she packed her bags, and she flew back to America. I've never been prouder of anybody in my life because I knew what was really going on in her heart. It was an agonizing step of faith. And even before God rewarded her later with the man of her dreams, which, by the way, he did, Sherrod and I had already experienced our greatest joy because we had a daughter who had crossed the goal line. God had become first for her. And there's no greater joy than that. So in the thrill ride of parenting, three things. Hold on to the goal, always guys, as dads, of God first in your children's hearts. Never stop pointing or praying them to it. And when they get there, expect a moment like I just described to you. You'll feel like the loop of parenting has been closed. You've completed the task. You've launched a difference maker into planet Earth. Secondly, for maximum parenting, hold on to your time. I say that because nothing gets away from a dad faster than his time. There was a national study on the family that was recently released, and guess what the number one complaint of teenagers was? My parents don't spend enough time with me. <laughs> that was the number one complaint of teenagers. We know from surveys that 
40% of all kids in America today don't feel a close relationship with their dad. Here's what Ephesians 5 says. It says, therefore, be careful how you walk or how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because these days are evil. I might put a paraphrase, these days are fast. That's why they become evil. They're so fast. In one thing, we are all equals as dads here today, if you're a dad. And that is, we all have the same amount of time. Nobody has more than anybody else. And with kids, some dads will make the most of that, and some dads won't. And the difference will be what your hold is. Some dads will have a firm grip on their time. Some dads will only gripe about their time. In fact, there are two management styles, time management styles of dads in homes today. The first is what I call the reactive time management style. It's the one that kind of lives more, I would say, by the tyranny of the urgent, by the things that are often not really that important, but guys, they seem important. And let me tell you why they seem important. Because you haven't thought in advance of what really is important to me and my kids. And so as new things come rushing into your life every day, which they will, you have nothing to measure the value of those things against. Because you haven't thought in advance, what are the things that must happen in my home and with my kids? If you have that and then things come rushing in, you have something to measure these opportunities against a filter to say, I can choose that and say no to that. But if you don't have that filter then everything fills the schedule. And there's no time to really think through where you're going. And the best things in life for a dad and his children are lost and missed in that blur of busyness and reaction that then just sweeps away the days. I call it the reactive time management approach. There's a second one, though. It's the proactive time management approach, which refuses to leave the best things in life to chance. Instead, it takes the time to decide in advance what those best things are. Then it calendars those things into the schedule, sometimes months, maybe even for some of us, a year in advance, and then protects those things at all cost from being put off. Sharon and I have done that for years where we'll take, usually at the start of a year, in fact, we're actually planning it right now where we'll get away and uh, take a couple of days just to look out over the course of the year and ask these two questions. What are some of the great experiences we want to have with the kids that we can afford to do? And we start dreaming about some great things that we could do. It might just be one thing, but we put that in there. And then what are some things that we want to accomplish with our kids? Some goals, some things we want to build into their lives. And we put those things down there. And then we look at some schedules that we have for some things that we know are coming up and we put those into the calendar. And those are the things that we protect at all costs. And sometimes they're just little things like getting the, the athletic schedule in advance and putting them down there and saying, now remember, put that on your daytimer at work. And so there'll be things that'll come up that give you a way of negotiating because you know you're protecting that time. Last Wednesday, for instance, after I left here, I flew to Washington, D.C., where I was speaking at the National Coalition of Men's Ministry Conference. 
And they had asked me several months before, not only to speak, but to do some seminars, but because we had done that kind of proactive planning. I knew that there were some family things that we were going to do at that same time or approximately that same time. And then the next day, my son had a basketball game. So it was easy for me just to look at the schedule and say, well, you know, in the invitation, yeah, I can come and speak for that one night, but I can't stay for the whole conference. I can't do the seminars. I've got to be back because I've already got things scheduled. Now, that's just a little thing, and they were fine with that. But there are a lot of those little things that happen over the course of a year. And if you're not careful by not having those things in there and protecting them, all those little things get swept away. There's also bigger things. That's why last week I gave you that strategic fathering game plan. That's not a little thing. That was a huge thing where you can hold on to your time because it allows you to plan really years in advance a few key strategies or a few key moments with your son or daughter that you don't want to miss. Let me just give you a brief review and show you how that works. Let's say your son is 13, okay? Here's the, here's, here's the game plan. I gave it to you last week. Now, we're just focusing on one year. Those key things that you need to be sure your son sees and hears and, and receives from you and experiences. So let's just walk down through it. Now, of course, he wants to see dad-loving mom. We talked about that. But that's a good place for you just to stop and check up. How am I doing with my wife? But remember in those years of him turning a teenager, him observing your character now becomes paramount because he starts really noticing your character. So you want to take note of that. He wants to see your heart. Maybe this particular year you have kind of a special getaway where on the getaway, just for him to see some of your heart on that getaway, you tell him what it was like growing up under your dad. And you tell him where your dad hurt you and where your dad made a huge difference. And just kind of open up your heart and let your son experience your world growing up. You tell him stories. You let him hear your feelings. But you plan some moments to let him see your heart. He needs to hear, I love you. But he hears, needs to hear in these teenage years two other things. Remember, that's when those other two little stars come on there. Because he's starting to differentiate himself from you. And so he really needs to hear, I'm proud of you and you're good at something. Needs that affirmation. You're moving, remember, from being a coach in those preteen years to a cheerleader in the dad parenting style during these years. So he really needs you to be encouraging him in that sense. You need to make sure you know what his personality is, what his strengths are, his bent is. You need to brag on him in public and doing that in earnest to build him up because more than anything else during those teenage years, he needs to be built up. You've got a game plan to do that. Notice he needs to receive that affirming encouragement. He needs to have life instruction. And maybe now that he's a teenager, you can begin to talk to him about how a man conducts himself honorably with a woman. What's his role? How does he date? What you're expecting of him as being a man with a woman. And maybe I'm giving him some previews about marriage in the future. Maybe you help him start a little business like I did with my son that summer, a little mowing business. Knows how to market, puts little advertisements in everybody's mailbox, gets it together, works out a schedule, and then does that mowing business all year long. That's some life instruction. Jesus in his life. Maybe for the first time you sit down with him 
He's been hearing it in church a lot, but you say, let me just explain to you how I know God. I did that with my son and another teenager. We got up for four weeks, four different days during a month, and went out and had breakfast together, and I just told them how I knew God in my life and let them ask me questions. He needs to experience some special one-on-one times with you. And notice there's a star and a dot, which is it's a unique opportunity and a great place to build a memory. So maybe on this particular year when he's 13, you take him hunting for the first time. Or maybe you come up with two tickets to an NCAA basketball tournament, and you go away just, you and him, to experience some big sporting event. And he needs a manhood ceremony. In fact, on our game plan, the first of the four ceremonies start when he's 13. So you plan this simple little ceremony where you take him out and explain to him the definition of manhood and that you're going to live that way and you want him to hold you accountable and you're going to call him to be that. See, these, these are the things that a dad has to plan in advance or here's what he'll be. He'll be sitting there when his son is leaving for college and he'll be looking back and saying, boy, I wish I'd have done more. But you can't do more reacting to life. You've got to calendar it in, plan it, and then implement the plan. For maximum parenting, you must hold on to your time. Third, you must hold on to your responsibility. Psalm 78, 72 says this, So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. Now look at the verse. You see the two responsibilities are embedded in there for a dad who becomes the shepherd of his home. And that's really what we are. We're dad, the family shepherd. The first responsibility there is that we must live with integrity. I told you this, and I'll say it again. Kids need a hero. And when they come into the world, you're their hero. I'm their hero. Not in a perfect sense, but in a real-time sense, we are. In fact, one of the greatest moments of my life, and I may get a little emotional even reading this, but one of the greatest moments of my life was on my daughter's wedding day. It was a, it was a great event, but that morning before the wedding, my wife and I got up early to go down and have breakfast, and the last person we expected to see was our daughter, the one who was getting married, Elizabeth, waiting for us early in the morning with breakfast already prepared. And she said, come down, I want to share breakfast with you, and i got something to say to you. And we were caught totally by surprise. But we came down and had breakfast, and she said, I want to read something to you. I want to share it with you because this means a lot to me. And on this day, I want you to be honored first. And she pulled out this. Now, I'm not going to read it all to you because it would take too long, but I'm going to read it just a small part as it relates to me. She said this, Dear Mom and Dad, I am overwhelmed by the enormous task of recapping and thanking you all for what you've taught, modeled, and sacrificed for me over the past 27 years. The blessings you've poured out over the decades have been unbelievable, and I'm only now realizing the magnitude of all you were to me. I am here today, this day, happier than I've ever been, marrying the most wonderful man because of you, your prayers, your gentle push to trusting and following the Lord your sacrifice, your quiet guidance on consequences, good and bad, for the direction my life would take because of decisions I was up against. Then she turned to me and said this, 
Dad, I know what a real man is because of you. A man after God's own heart, a leader, a provider, a lover to your wife and father to your children. I knew what kind of man I wanted to marry because of you. You and I are kindred spirits, and I don't know what I would have done without our long talks. Thank you for taking me to swim practice at 4.30 in the morning. Thank you for walking with me on the Great Wall of China when I was 11 years old and giving me a love for travel. Thank you for always encouraging me to dream big, for hosting the best birthday parties ever, for always making me feel special, for letting Katie and me go backpacking in Europe when we were only 18, for encouraging me to go to graduate school, for being proud of me and telling me you were, for letting me make mistakes, for never missing a swim meet or basketball or volleyball game, for showing me what a good marriage is supposed to look like, for bringing us back presents when you went out to speak out of town, for making a big deal out of little accomplishments, for teaching me about being good with money, for giving me mom's Camry just because, for taking us to Colorado in the summer, for spending time with me on dates or shopping trips, even with three kids in the family, the best Christmases every year, praising me in front of your friends, teaching me the value of hard work, praying for me, teaching me that details count, taking, taking us out to eat, to party, when we experience little accomplishments and victories, reading thus the Chronicles of Narnia, being on my side when life and people seem to be against me. All those two and three line emails pointing me to trusting God and always loving me, no matter what. On this day, I am so honored to be known as Robert Lewis's daughter. Now guys, I cried my eyes out. Because let me tell you, as far as integrity is concerned, it was worth it. It was worth it. And guys, that's what I would want for every man in the room, to have a moment like that. He shepherded them with the integrity of his heart. Secondly, we must constantly upgrade our parenting skills. Notice it says, he guided them with skillful hands. And here's what I want you to know. We have skill when we have a game plan to raising a son or daughter, a long-term game plan. We have skill when we do that. We have skill when we can define manhood and womanhood to our children. We have skill when we know how to change our parenting style over the seasons of a child's life, from coaching to cheerleader to consultant. We have skill when we know their personalities because we've taken the time to discover what their personality is in detail, and then we adjust according to it. All these things, by the way, we've talked about, hadn't we? We have skill when we know their bent, and we accept their bent as from God, and then encourage them to develop that bent. We have skill when we appreciate how birth order, for instance, affects each and every child, because it does. Did you know that? Birth order affects every child. If you have a firstborn, firstborns all tend to be achievers, and they have some perfectionistic part of their life. 
They tend to conform to standards that they perceive are required. Firstborns have high expectations of themselves and others. They're cautious, conscientious. They usually tend to be reliable. And they're fearful of new situations. All firstborns have tendencies those directions. Middleborns are different. Middleborns, especially if they're of the same sex as the firstborn, will look for ways to define themselves against the firstborn. Did you know that? They'll go different directions. That's why sometimes they look so different from firstborns. Middleborns are likely to be very sociable. They tend to be very competitive, aggressive, independent. Your middleborn can be even rebellious, like the prodigal son. Lastborns, those are the ones who get away with murder. And if you're a lastborn in the room, you tend to be the type that's more the life of the party. It goes with being a lot of times a lastborn. They're very outgoing. They love fun. And lastborns tend to be demanding and manipulative, and they tend to draw others in to help them accomplish things because that's how they grew up, drawing others in, their siblings, to help them accomplish things. A, a dad who has skill understands birth order and how it impacts his children. We have skill when we learn to dream with our kids. And I want to encourage you dads to dream big. One child expert said it this way, a child should be helped by the parent to dream a great dream for his or her life. Not in the sense of being famous, but in the sense of making a great contribution. I remember when Garrett, my son, was probably eight years old, next to his bed, I hung a big picture, that I, a poster that I'd gotten of the human body. And every night when we'd go in and I'd tell him a story, he'd look over and he would point to me to the bones of that human body there and he would name them because he memorized all the bones of the human body just with that poster sitting there. Later on when he was in middle school and he was doing real good in science, I just said to him casually one day, you know, you'd make a great doctor. Remember when you memorized all those bones? in the body, and here you are good in science. Nobody in our family is good in science. I can't think of anybody in our past that's been good at science, but you're good at science. You're the perfect doctor type. And where is he now? He's in med school. Because that was a bent that even just in a general way I was picking up on and started dreaming with him. He bought into the dream. Now, not any dream will do. It's got to be a dream that goes along with their bent. But if you know their bent, you can begin to dream big dreams. With my daughter Elizabeth, we always dream she about travel. And when I talked about going around the world, and I had one opportunity to take her to China. And then she took that one experience, and for the next 10 years, she went all around the world because she had a big dream and the world didn't scare her anymore. It was her destiny. But it was birthed in a conversation, I believe, with dad. A dad who upgrades his parenting skills with every skill that he gets, he'll be unleashing a world of good in his child. Hold on. Hold on to your responsibility, guys. And then lastly, hold on to your mate. For maximum parenting, you've got to hold on to your mate. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now, I want you to look at the verse for a minute. 
He says, do not be embittered. That's an interesting statement because what it implies, it implies these small little things getting into the relationship that over time build an irritation that ultimately build into a bitterness that breeds isolation. And family experts tell us that two of the toughest times in marriage or where marriages really suffer the most or have the most stress is when the husband and wife have small kids, preschool kids, and then later when they have teenage kids. That brings a lot of stress because in those two critical periods of time when children are demanding so much from you and time gets squeezed so tight, it's easy for the husband to feel undercared for and he begins to be resentful. That resentfulness builds to bitterness and the wife feels overworked and undersupported and she starts withdrawing and before long you're doing a lot of things for the kids but nothing for each other and it's easy to let that create a barrier or a wall that when the kids are gone it's hard to overcome that's why you need to hold on to your mate from time to time all through your marriage you've heard me stress this you need to be getting away with your mate, especially in those preschool years and teenage years, you need time away from the kids, not time with the kids all the time. It's not going to hurt them. It's really more healthy for you if you keep stoking the fires of your relationship all the way through. Here's what Neil Warren, who's author of the book Triumphant Marriage, said. And by the way, what I like about this book, it's a book that's gleaned from the wisdom of 100 highly successful couples. He went and just interviewed them and looked for common traits. But look what he says about this particular issue. He says this, Show me a man and woman who have children, and I will show you a man and woman who need more than ever to nurture their relationship to ensure it thrives and grows. There's something about romance that's intensely personal. It all gets started when two people look at each other and feel something powerful happening inside themselves. They sit down with each other and they begin to share their thoughts and feelings. They talk about their dreams, their goals, their values, their beliefs, their hopes, and their fears. Sometimes men who spend tremendous energy in their careers want their wives to feel their love on the basis of how hard I am working for both of us. It doesn't work like this. And sometimes women who give passionately to their children want their husbands to see how much I obviously love you because of how much I am giving to our kids. It doesn't work this way either. Romance requires personal, direct, face-to-face -face time. There is never a time when two people can keep their love growing and prospering without plenty of energy spent relating to each other individually and intimately. This is why I encourage people who have children to schedule time for romance Work it in at least once a week. Guys, I just want you to look at the screen. There's wisdom speaking here. And there are going to be young couples who have young children saying, I, I feel insecure leaving my kids. Is, is it okay? Would it hurt them if we were gone for three or four days, five days? Absolutely not. In fact, if, it, if anything's going to hurt them is you hovering over them all the time. They need for you to get away from them and they need for you to build up their EQ, their emotional quotient, which a Harvard researcher wrote a best-selling book about, that EQ is the greatest predictor of a child's success, way more than IQ. His, his or her emotional stability is way more important than their intellectual ability, but you know where they get that emotional stability? 
They get it from seeing mom and dad love one another. I ask our children's staff here at the church, and we have hundreds and hundreds of kids here, for one piece of advice I could give you this morning about what they learn from working with kids every week. Here's what they said. Tell them it is obvious that the happiest, best-adjusted children that we see are those whose parents have strong marriages. It's the marriage that builds the child. And so, men, the greatest gift you can give your children is to love their mother. And every time, every year, look and say, how are we doing? And keep stoking the fires of romance and taking the time to do so. Three years ago, my wife, Sherrod, and I were on the beach in Cancun, Mexico. Just the two of us. We had teenage kids, but there we were all by ourselves, five days on the beach. We were sitting out there, the ocean lapping you know, up on our feet. There were some troubadours singing in the background and we were eating chips and salsa. And I turned to my wife with tears in my eyes and I looked at her and I said, honey, this is so good for the kids. <laughs> Hold on to your mate. Well, guys, we're about done with winning at home. We've been talking about parenting. It all begins with these words. It's a boy! Or it's a girl! And then very quickly, they consume all your time. They consume your heart. They consume your life and your prayers. There will be sleepless nights and fevers and diapers and story times. There will be lost teeth and micro soccer and t-ball and braces and birthdays and occasionally a spiritual discussion. There will be broken bones and campouts and fishing trips and wrestling matches, school plays, driver's lessons, science projects, vacations, proms, Friday night heroics, dates, confrontations, and then all of a sudden, graduation. Before you could imagine it, the lights are off in their room. They're walking down the stairs and packing their car to go off to college. And poof, they're gone. The question is, with what? Hopefully, pointed to God hopefully with great memories dancing in their head of time spent with you, hopefully with big dreams to pursue, hopefully with an image of what it means to live with a man or woman for a lifetime. That's what they need to be motoring out of town with. It's called Maximum Parenting. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.